I'll start serious in just a second. But let me, I know you guys can watch announcements, but if you normally attend a 10 o'clock service, this affects you guys. Um, time, time Change Sunday is Time Change Sunday. We're, we're, and, and see, it won't cost you anything because you get an extra hour of sleep. So this service becomes 15 minutes earlier. If you're a normal attendee of this service, you know why. There's another service that looks just like this that's coming in 30 minutes after this one ends. And sometimes there's a huge parking lot jam tie-up. And so this will, this will create a little more space. So if you normally attend this service on Time Change Sunday, you'll only get 45 minutes extra because we start 15 minutes early at 945. Our series is called Strange But True. And if you grew up in church like I did, chances are you heard some Bible stories that were kind of unusual. And you thought to yourself, that is kind of strange. But the more you thought about it, they had big lessons. And, and that's what happened with me. And I grew up in church, and, and there are some favorites of mine, four, four Bible stories that are my personal favorites that are kind of little-known stories, and we're going to be talking about those. And but before I get there, let me just say this as well. You know, the Bible is a great book, and many of us, we just kind of have surface knowledge of it. Have you ever wished that you could be part of just a kind of a living room discussion where you could sit around with other people who wanted to explore the Bible and no question would be off limits or no question would be laughed at? that you could just kind of learn the basics of what's in the book and how to explore. We've got something for that. It's called Starting Point here at New Spring. They're living room environments, and you sit around with others and discuss it, but it's a guided discussion, and it's really an awesome experience. And here's the reason why I'm telling you this. Immediately when this service is over during the 1130 service, there is a, a reception in the parking lot across the way in the East Building. And all you got to do is just walk in there and say, hey, I want to be part of that. Um, there's food there. That's worth going there for nothing else. And you don't even necessarily have to sign up. It's just an exploration to see if you're interested. All you need to do is stop by Kids World Check-In and say, hey, my kid's going to ride the bus again. And then you can be part of that. So when this service is over, if you're interested, just go straight across the parking lot and you'll be in it. You know, um, I got thinking about this before this message. Um, in any relationship that's deep, in fact, there's a sort of, there's sort of a correlation here. The deeper the relationship, the more there exists a duality. On one hand, you have mercy and grace, and on the other hand, you have accountability. My wife was in a 4 o'clock service, so she was sitting right over there when I was delivering this talk, and I thought about her. I promise you, there's been mercy and grace in the 36 years that we've been married. I promise you. If there hadn't been mercy and grace in huge quantities on Mary Alice's part, I'd be underground somewhere. Um, but there's a lot of mercy and grace in that relationship. And to a much smaller extent, I've, I've given mercy and grace. But there's also accountability there because although we have mercy and grace that we extend to each other, there's certain accountabilities that are part of a deep relationship. And, and there's a strange thing that happens when we begin to focus on one of those to the exclusion of the other. For instance, if in my marriage I'm totally focused on mercy and grace and only the mercy that Mary Alice gives me for what I, you know, not giving me what I do deserve or grace, her giving me what I don't deserve, if all I think about is that and I never think about accountability, I'm going to be a jerk. I'm going to be a tyker. I, if that's all I focus on, I'm going to be a taker. On the other hand, if all I focus on is my accountability to her, and I don't think about the mercy and the grace and the love that characterizes our relationship, then I'm going to hate to see her coming. Because every time I see her, I'm going to be reminded of how I'm coming up short and how I'm failing her. And it won't be long before I won't even want to be with her. There will be so much distance there. Now, the greatest relationship in our life and the deepest relationship of our life is our relationship with God. And many of us have been through situations in which we have focused on one of those elements to the exclusion of the other. How many of you come from very rigid, and please don't raise your hands, 
You didn't have to nod at me, even blink at me or anything like this. But how many of you come from very rigid religious relationships? And, and every, every day you got hit over, every time you went to worship, you got hit over the head with a pastor with a 48-pound Bible for all the ways that you're coming up short. And after a while, you don't want to go to church. You don't want to think about God. You're scared to pray. It's like there's now distance between you and God because all you focus on is your accountability. On the other hand, some of us come from environments in which all we focus on is the love and the grace of God. And we never think about our accountability. And what happens at that point is we become, we, we start living lives that are, that are virtual train wrecks. So what I want to do in this series is I want to focus on both of those things so that we'll have a balance. And that's what we try to do here at New Spring. We want to have a balanced concept of our relationship with God. I've said all that to say this. Today we're going to be focusing on the accountability side of our relationship to God. I want to talk to you about the man who whipped his own donkey. Uh, when I was a kid, I needed sermons on Balaam probably more than I needed the average sermon. But when I was a kid growing up, sermons on Balaam posed a challenge. See, I grew up in a small church. It had two lines of pews, and all the boys like me who were really tough and cool, we all sat on the back seat of the church, the back pew of the church, and we demonstrated our coolness by sitting together and acting as though we were totally disinterested. Now, in those days, our pastor preached out of the King James Version of the Bible, which is a little bit of, a, it can be an antiquated translation at times because the meanings of words had changed, and therein lay our issue with sermons on Balaam because although we needed sermons on Balaam, the story was of Balaam and his donkey, and the word for donkey had changed over time to the point where it had become a word that was a naughty word that we were not supposed to say. And the problem is we had a hard time hearing these wonderful messages about Balaam because every time the minister started talking, he would start talking about Balaam and his donkey, and he would say that word that we heard at school a lot when on the playground somebody was threatening to whip ours, and we would... We, <laughs> We would hear that, and the problem is we'd start laughing. Every time a pastor talked about Balaam and his donkey, it just was so hard to stay in tune. And then when he started talking about Balaam whipping his, then it got funny. And it even got funnier when the donkey started talking. So uh, we had a challenge with sermons on Balaam. Fortunately for us, our translation is a newer translation. It uses the word donkey, so we won't run into that. But I do want to talk to you about the man who whipped his own donkey. And today, I just want to introduce this story to you. Some of you will know it. Others of you will be hearing it for the first time. So if you're hearing it for the first time, I need to introduce the characters so that you will know who we're talking about when we get to them in the story. First of all, the Israelites. Israelites are God's chosen people. And they're on their way to the promised land. They have left Egypt. And right now, they are at the end of their 40-year sojourn in the wilderness that Jonathan talked about last week. The young generation is up at the plate. Moses is going to live just a short time longer. He's not going to be around much more. Joshua is going to lead them. The Israelites are now about to take their, their trip across the Jordan River and go into Canaan. But before they get to Jordan, there are some smaller people groups that they have to take care of business. They have already defeated two very powerful kings. 
And now they come to the area where the Moabites live. That brings me to the second person that you need to know. His name is Balak. We'll need to keep those separate because we're going to be talking about Balaam, but this is Balak. Balak is the king of Moab. Now, if you were here during the Friends series, I talked to you about Lot. And if you remember Lot, you remember that I told you that Lot so screwed up his life that he finished up in a cave, drunk out of his mind, not even realizing he was sleeping with his own daughters. But the problem is he fathered two sons in those incestuous relationships, and one of those sons was Moab. So it's not surprising, I'm sure, for you to hear that a people group that was founded in incest and alcohol abuse turned out to be some of the cruelest people the Israelites would ever face. Balak is the king of the Moabites, and the Israelites must go through Moab in order to get to Jordan to go into the promised land. And now Balaam. Every once in a while, somebody who reads the Old Testament will notice that pretty much everything in the Old Testament is about the nation of Israel and God working through the Israelites. And here's what people will ask me. Do God work with other people groups in the Old Testament? And the answer is absolutely yes. The reason why we don't have it recorded is pretty much we need the story of Israel so that we can see how that Jesus Christ came into our world. But God did work with other people groups. And he gave them individuals through whom God would speak to those people. And Balaam was someone whom I guess we could call with an asterisk beside the word. Balaam was a prophet. From time to time, God would speak to him. He was not a Jewish person, but God would speak to Balaam. Balaam would speak a prophecy, and that prophecy would come true because it came from God. And over time, Balaam achieved a certain notoriety and status with Moab and other people groups around because people knew that his word came true. Now, Balak, the king, is very concerned because the Israelites, this great people group that have already gone through two other nations like a hot knife through butter, the Israelites are now on his front doorstep, and he is concerned they're going to overwhelm him. So guess what Balaam does? He gets together some of his servants and a big wad of cash, and he sends them, Balak sends them to Balaam in the hopes that Balaam will come and put a hex on the Israelites and Balak thinks that maybe that might just be enough mojo that he might be able to overcome. With that in mind, let's pick up the story in Numbers 22, verse 8. Now, the, the um, messengers of Balak are in Balaam's house. Stay here overnight, Balaam said. In the morning, I will tell you whatever the Lord directs me to say. That night, God came to Balaam and asked him, who are these men visiting you? God knew. He just wanted Balaam to tell him. Balaam said to God, Balak has sent me this message. Look, a vast horde of people has arrived from Egypt, and they cover the face of the earth. Come and curse these people for me. Then perhaps I will be able to stand up to them and drive them from the land. God told Balaam, do not go with them. Now, what does God want Balaam not to do? Not, don't go with them. You are not to curse these people, for they have been blessed. Game, set, match. Balaam went to God. What do I do? God said, don't go. Don't curse them. They've been blessed. That's the final word. Next morning, Balaam got up, told Balak's officials, go home. The Lord will not let me go with you. Okay. Good man. I mean, this is God's prophet. Balaam said, let me go find out what God has to say. God said, don't go. You're not to curse them. We know from Genesis they've been blessed. Balaam said, go home. Can't go. Great. If you've ever been in negotiation. Have you ever offered something and it was turned down and you thought to yourself, maybe if I sweeten the deal a little bit? That's just part, of, part and parcel of the negotiation. So when, when the messengers came back to Balak and said, I'm sorry, it's a deal breaker, he won't come, Balak got a bigger wad of cash and some more influential messengers and he sends them to Balaam. Now, 
Here's what he says in, in verse 17. I will pay you very well and do whatever you tell me. Just come and curse these people for me. But prophet Balaam responded to King Balak's messengers. And here's what he said. Even if Balak were to give me his palace filled with silver and gold, I would be powerless to do anything against the will of the Lord my God. Good. Good, right? We like this guy. I mean, you know, not only did he say, I can't go with you. He said, look, man, you can just make this wad as big as you want to make it. And I still can't go. Uh-oh. Look at the next verse. But stay here one more night. Now we'll see if the Lord has anything else to say. Now, here's what I want. I want you to get this picture in your mind. Balaam is, is saying, I can't go. But all the time, his eyes are on that big roll of money. <laughs> I can't go with you. God won't let me go. Uh, but stay here one more night. I'll talk to God and see if I can talk him into this. Now, right there, listen, New Spring. This is where it really gets in our grill right now. We learn everything we need to know about Balaam. Number one, his mouth says one thing, but his heart says something else. Number two, money is what he's really about. He talks God, but money is what drives Balaam. And the third thing is he is stubborn. He's going to push it. God has said, no, Balaam, don't go with him. Balaam says, stay here one more night. And here's the thing. We're not going to read this entire story because it's several chapters long, but read this story if you want to when you get home. And you'll see over and over and over, Balaam just keeps pushing it, keeps pushing it, keeps pushing it until finally he goes over the edge. Balaam is in hell this morning. There's no doubt about that because the New Testament talks about him. Balaam's in hell today. And yet, on the other hand, he spoke for God. I mean, Dr. Spurgeon 100 years ago said this. He had the voice of an angel and the heart of a devil. Finally, Balaam decided to go with the messengers to check out what was possible. So let's read it. The next morning, Balaam got up, saddled his donkey, and started off with the Moabite officials. But God was angry that Balaam was going. So he sent the angel of the Lord to stand in the road to block his way. As Balaam and the two servants were riding along... Balaam's donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. The donkey bolted off the road into a field, but Balaam beat it and turned it back into the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood at a place where the road narrowed between two vineyard walls. Any of you old people like me grew up in church where they have flannel graph? A lot of you don't have any idea what flannel graph is. You're so blessed. <laughs> flannel graph was like a prehistoric video. I mean, it's like the teacher would put flannel images up on the board. And I can still see this. I'm seven years old, you know, in, in Sunday school. And the teacher's showing Balaam on his donkey riding and the angel standing there with the sword. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> then the angel of the Lord stood in a place where the road narrowed between two vineyard walls. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it tried to squeeze by and crush Balaam's foot against the wall. So Balaam beat the donkey again. Then the angel of the Lord moved further down the road and stood in a place too narrow for the donkey to get by at all. This time when the donkey saw the angel, it lay down under Balaam. In a fit of rage, Balaam beat the animal again with his staff. Then the Lord gave the donkey the ability to speak. <laughs> you know, I am convinced that heaven has a museum. And some of you have the idea when we go to heaven, we're going to turn into angels and we're going to float around on clouds and twang on harps. Where do we get this stuff? I mean, heaven's going to be awesome. I mean, I, I'm convinced heaven's going to have golf courses and outboard, I mean, mo boats with outboard motors. And I mean, here's, I mean, this world is fantastic, and yet what can God, I mean, if God made this world in six days, what can he do in 2,000 years? 
So there's going to be a museum in heaven, I'm sure, and there are going to be exhibit rooms where you can go and watch stuff that happened on the earth. And even though it's heaven, I think there's going to be a line always at the museum exhibit of Balaam and his donkey, because I think we're all going to want to see that. Because all of a sudden, Balaam, you know, and here's the thing, animals communicate, don't they? Do you, do you have animals? They communicate. And you ever look at your dog and think, you know, I think he just has something to say. <laughs> I, mean, he's just, he wish he could talk to me. And so God gave this donkey the ability to talk. And look, the donkey says, what have I done to you that deserves you beating me these three times? And Balaam said, uh, look at this, he's just talking back to his donkey. You made me look like a fool. I think, well, who's talking to a donkey? <laughs> you made me look like a fool. Now, Balaam didn't need any help with that. If I had a sword with me, I'd kill you. But I'm the same donkey you've ridden all your life, the donkey answered. Have I ever done anything like this before? No, Balaam admitted. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the roadway with a drawn sword in his hand. Balaam bowed his head and fell face down on the ground before him. The angel said, why did you beat your donkey these three times? Now, I've got this in red in my notes, and this is where it stops being funny. Because, see, here's the deal. Some of you, you're on the wrong path, and you know you're on the wrong path. And stuff starts going wrong, and you start whining. I don't know why life doesn't work out for me. But you're on the wrong path, and you know it. Now, I have this in red. Here's what God said through his angel to Balaam. Look, I have come to block your way. See, here's the deal. A lot of us have the idea that God is the heavenly mojo maker. That God is like, God is there to juice up our agenda. God is there to, he, God is there just to sign our checks to whatever we want in life. Follow your dream, follow your heart. And God is just there to be the heavenly mojo maker. And yet God is saying, no, I came here to stop you. I came here to block your path, Balaam, because you are stubbornly resisting me. Three times the donkey saw me and shied away. Otherwise, I would have certainly killed you by now. And look at this, and spared the donkey. <laughs> we'll stop the story here. We won't go any further because, to be honest with you, this goes on and on and on until Balaam goes off the cliff. He will say the right thing, but he does something else until he destroys himself. And here's, in every sense of the word, take this however you want to take it. Whether you take it with the old translation or the new translation, in every sense of the word, Balaam whips his own donkey. Nobody has to whip him. He whips himself. And over and over, he says, anyway, just read this. He'll say, I'm going to do right. I'm going to do right. I'm going to do right. I'm sorry, God. Yes, God. I got you now. And yet every time he goes right back and does the same thing. Chance after chance, close escape after close escape, but he stubbornly refuses to get off the wrong road until he crashes and burns. Guys, I, I don't want to be heavy today, but sometimes we need it. We really need it. I love Jeremiah 29, 11. I did a whole series on it called Dreams. Some of you know Jeremiah 29, 11. It's your life first. God says, I know the plans that I have for you, plans to give you hope in the future, and we love that. But did you know that th that, that verse isn't spoken to everybody? God didn't say to everybody, I know the plans for you. In Jeremiah 29, 11, he said that. But in Jeremiah 18, 11, he said this to a different group of people. Look, I'm preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and your actions. Why? So that they won't have to live out that terrible plan. But they reply, it's no use. We will continue with our own plans, each of us, 
will follow the stubbornness of his own heart. God is saying, look, I've got a disaster planned. And yet they're saying, no, you and, and I hear people say that. I mean, I, I've had people say that in my office. I don't care what God says. I found a woman I like better than my wife. I'm leaving her. I, whatever God says, you know, I'm going to do what I want to do. It could be that you're sitting there and you're thinking, Mark, are you, uh, are you worried about somebody here at New Spring? Of the 6,000 people that will attend this weekend, are you worried about a, a New Springer here? And the answer to that question is yes. I preach this message today because I'm especially worried about one New Springer, and his name is Mark. You say, Mark? I mean, you're talking about you could be like Balaam? Well, I can't go to hell because I've given my life to Christ, but, you know, I can still be stubborn. See, here's the deal. There's a, there's a, there's a wide chasm between stubbornness and tenaciousness. Being tenacious is being, being steadfast in something that's right. Stubbornness is being steadfast in something that's wrong. I've had people brag about being stubborn as though they should get a medal for it, but it's the most foolish thing in the world. Stubbornness is persisting in doing what is wrong or unwise. And guys, I want you to know, I mean, you're not listening to a spiritual rock star here today. I am capable. I know this is a surprise to you, but I am capable of being stubborn. So since I am concerned about myself in this regard, let me share with you three thoughts. That, because as I, as I bring this message today, here are three things that I want to hear. And here's the first one. And then it's very important. Don't be surprised if your heart wanders away from God. You know, boy, I sure hope I'm not messing with anybody today. I don't intend to. But every once in a while I hear this expression that's become so popular in postmodern culture. Follow your heart. Where, where does that come from? You follow your heart, you go off a cliff. I mean, let me ask you about I mean, Maybe your heart's just better than mine. My heart comes up with some of the stupidest ideas. If I were to follow that, I'd be in oblivion just like that. See, here's the problem. Our, and, and, and I love, we sang an old hymn the other day, and it says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. In other words, there's something within me that pulls me away from God. I have it. And you do too. Here's what the Bible says in Isaiah 53. Listen to this. All of us like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. There's just something in Mark, as much as I love God and I want to follow his path, there's just something in my gear work that pulls me away from God's path. There is an inner tension in us. And I think, in fact, I know we're going to have that inner tension until we go to heaven. I think that's one of the things that's going to make heaven heaven is I won't have that inner tension that pulls me away from God. And I, I'm not trying to give anybody a pass here today because if you and I do this, we'll suffer for it. But let me just say this. Here's the thing. Just keeping it real here today, there will likely be seasons in your life, even if you're a Christ follower, where you will get your eyes off the Lord for a short time and you'll get off the path. I mean, how else would you explain Noah developing a drinking problem after he built the ark? How else would you explain David sleeping with his next-door neighbor and having her husband killed after he wrote the 23rd Psalm? How else could you explain Peter cussing and saying he didn't know Jesus after he promised that he would go with him no matter what? But unlike Balaam, these guys and gals, when they realized they got off the path, they grieved about it, and they wanted to get back on the path. But here is the key. God has called us, listen, to all of us, 
God has called us all to get off our path and to get on his. Now, I shared with you a series called Intensive Care, and basically there were six messages on lessons I learned when I hit the wall. And I shared with you how that in a time of exhaustion and physical illness, um, I just really hit the wall. And not only was it a time of illness and exhaustion and, and my ADD running off the, off the edge of the earth, um, I also really began to explore where I was with God. And I don't know if you've ever had a moment like that where you've just really opened yourself up to God, no excuses, and you just said, God, tell me where I am. And when I did, what I saw was really ugly. And I didn't have anything in my life that would have been a scandal. There was nothing in my life that I think anybody would have said, wow, that's, we'll put that in the eagle. I mean, because I was faithful to my wife and ethical and, and all of that. I mean, just a lot of the stuff that, that sidetracks a lot of guys who are in ministry, I, I didn't have any of those things in my life. But when I opened myself up to God, God showed me a couple of very ugly things. And one of those things was I did what I did out of responsibility. I mean, this church just sort of grew up on me, and, and I'm in my 28th year of being here. And, and through the years, I've just grown with it, and my responsibilities have grown and I was just doing what I was doing because I was responsible to do it. And I didn't love God like I needed to love God. I didn't, I didn't necessarily preach because I love God. I was preaching because it's the weekend and I've got four times to do it. And I wanted to do a good job, but I, I, it was, somehow I had lost that passion. I'm doing it because I love God. And when I realized I didn't love God like I need to do, if you've ever had one of these moments like Isaiah had in Isaiah 6, and you see yourself for who you are, Guys, I listen to music all the time. I'm a baby boomer. There's a soundtrack to my life. But I, all of a sudden, I didn't want to listen to music. I love sports. If it's on ESPN, it's for me. But all of a sudden, I didn't want to watch any games. Freak my wife out. Because all I wanted to do day in, day, in, day out, I just read, read, read Scripture. Because I said, I need God to say something to me about where Mark is. And you know what blew me away? I was amazed at how many times I found one word, Old Testament and New Testament. And that word is repent. Now for some of you, when you hear the word repent, it's like, ouch. All of a sudden, you see stained glass and you hear an organ, a big organ playing. It's a very religious word, repent. Listen, now listen guys, we just need to understand what that word means. Repent comes from two Greek words that are jammed together. Meta, our prefix meta, we use it in metabolism. Metastasis, meta means change. Nous or noise, anoia for thinking. Metanoia, it means a change of thinking. So this is the deal. God is saying, I want you to change your thinking. I mean, here's the deal. God is not calling you to perfection because, listen, you and I can't be perfect for one day. But what God is, listen, oh, this is so big. This is worth coming today. What God is calling us to do is to change our attitudes. See, that's the problem with Balaam. All the time, Balaam was saying the right things, but he never changed his attitude. You know what's weird here today? You know, a lot of people come to New Spring that are agnostic when they come here. Hey, I love you, and, and you're who gets me up in the morning, but, you know, I'm not really worried about you so much here. And, and we have people who come to New Spring, I know, because they tell me, you know, just hellraisers. You know, it's like I've never had religion. You know, born to, born to be wild. And, and I got messages for you, and, and I want you to, to turn from that, but I'm not really concerned about you right now. Here. You know who I'm concerned about? 
I'm concerned about you guys who grew up in church. You learned all the jargon of secret handshakes. I mean, you can talk about the Bible. I mean, you're like Balaam. You can say the right things, but your attitude in your heart. Hey, let me just give you what Jesus said. Jesus has this great story. Talking to a very religious crowd one time, Jesus said, tell me what you think about this story. A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go out for the day and work in the vineyard. And the son answered, I don't want to. Any of you have kids like that? No, sure not. I don't want to. But later on, he thought better of it and went. The father gave the same command to the second son. He answered, sure, dad, glad to. I'm going right now, headed right out, count on me. I'll be there all day long. I'm start early and finish late. But he never went. Jesus said, which of the two sons did what the father asked? They said grudgingly, the first. Jesus said, yes, and I tell you that crooks and whores are going to precede you into God's kingdom. You know why? Because a, crook knows, a thief knows who he is. A whore knows who she is. And when they change, they change. But the problem is some of us who, like me, you grew up, you knew all the right language. It's so easy to say the words. It's so easy to portray the image of being a Christian. And the problem is we've got the best words in the world and the stinkingest attitudes. I know I'm capable of that. That's why I'm, I'm fearful of this. I'm just saying to you, don't be surprised when your heart pulls you away from God. Hey, listen, your heart's going to pull you away from God. My heart's going to pull me away from God. You're not the Antichrist if your heart pulls you away from God. Because the Bible says all we like sheep have gone astray. We have left his path to follow our own. See, God calls us to sexual purity, but how many of us, probably all of us, unless you're dead, you deal with lust. God calls us to give, but we want to hold on. I mean, God pulls us to putting others first, but we want our way. You see what I'm saying? God calls us to one way of living, but our heart pulls us in a different direction. Don't be surprised. It's normal. Don't freak. But it is time to identify it and to change our attitudes. And by the way, guys, here's the reason why Jesus had to die. Now, please listen. I want to go back to a verse I used a moment ago. All we like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord has laid on him. The iniquity is what the older translations say. Ours says sin. Do you know what the word means there? It means crookedness. In other words, all those crooked paths we've taken, Jesus had to die for those crooked paths. All that getting off the path was placed on Jesus, and that's why he died. Here's point two, real fast. Is God drawing you to change? I mean, it could be that you're here today and you're saying, I didn't really think about this before I came in, but now that I think about this, I'm, I'm thinking there's some stuff in my life that needs to change. Let me tell you something. That's not Mark. Man, don't give me credit for that. Because I'm, I'm thinking about it right now in my life. But if you're here right now and you're saying, you know, I, I, I'm concerned about this. Do you realize? Please listen to me. Please. If there's anything within you right now that's feeling like I need to get off my path, I'm on the wrong path, and follow God, that is God talking to you. And I bring this message because we need to understand how serious, this is the whole reason behind this message, we need to know how serious stubbornness is in the sight of God. God would say this in 1 Samuel 15, rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft, and stubbornness is as bad as worshiping idols. I could talk to somebody here today and you say, okay, Mark, I'm on my own path, but I'm doing all right. Me and God, we're tight. I had a friend one time told me, God's got my back. 
I thought, yeah, he's probably aiming right at it right now. Listen to this. This is a scary verse to me. Romans 2, 5. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, in other words, refusing to change your attitude, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. So number one, don't be surprised if your heart pulls you away from God. Number two, if God is pulling you toward getting on his path, do it today. And the third thing is, here's the blessed part. God is pulling for you. You know, and again, I don't want to be too personal about this. But when I saw myself for what I was during that dark time in my life, I remember telling Mary Allison on an airplane flying out to Phoenix, I said, I don't know if I can ever go back. And the reason I felt that was, I thought, when I saw my absence of love for God, I thought, have I crossed the line? Have I, have I come to the place where God has said, Mark, that's it, you're finished? Is this season in my life God's way of saying, it's too late? And I can be talking to somebody here today, and, and you're saying, Mark, you don't know what I've done. You don't, I mean, yeah, I got off the path, but you don't know how much damage I did when I got off the path. You don't know who I've been with. Mark, you don't know how many people I've hurt, and you don't know how badly I've hurt them. I don't know. Maybe it's too late for me. But let me ask you a question. Do you want to come back to God? Because if you want to come back to God, the very fact that you want to come back to God means it's not too late yet. If you're here today and you're ready to flip me off and flip God off and you're just like, I don't feel anything, then maybe it is too late for you. Because the Bible is clear. People do get to that place where God turns out the lights. But when he does turn out the lights, there's never any, there's never any desire to be right. It's I'm going to do what I want to do regardless and Forget about it. If you're there today, I'm scared. But if listening to this message today, there's something within you that says, I really do need to get right. Is it too late for me? I have the joy of telling you, no, it's not too late. The very fact that you want to get right means it's not too late. God is pulling for you. I want to go down to the book of Joel, chapter 2. In the darkest days of my life, these scriptures became very, very, they became very special to me. This is why the Lord says, turn to me now. Do you know God, listen, please, listen to me. God never says, turn to me tomorrow. Tomorrow is not on the table. Next week is not on the table. You be here today and say, Mark, I'm in an affair, but you know it's a bad time for her right now, and if I were to break it off right now, it'd be bad. Maybe about six weeks or something. God never, God never asks you to turn to him in six weeks. Well, Mark, I'm doing this dirty deal right now, and it's, you know, it's not right, and it's not even legal, but you know, I want to get this done, and when I get it done, and I'm gonna, and God never asks you to turn to him after you get a dirty deal done. God only calls you to come one time now. Turn to me now. While there's time. Okay, somebody's saying, I'll reach for my wallet. I'm going to write God a check. No, God is saying, don't want your money. God is saying, give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping, and mourning. And back in those days, people would tear their clothing as a sign of grief and repentance. And a lot of times, people got real good and real demonstrative at it. And God said, look, don't tear your clothes. Tear your hearts. 
See, that's what I realized. What God was wanting from Mark was God wanted Mark to just get rid of all the pride that was in him and all those crusts of image that I had crafted. God wanted me to tear that. That's one of the reasons I came home and gave you six lessons or six messages about things that I learned when I hit the wall. Tear your heart. Return to the Lord your God. Why? Because he's merciful and compassionate. Slow to get angry. Fill with unfailing love. And I love this line. He is eager. Some of us grew up in church and we had the idea God is just eager to hit you with a hammer. No, no, no. God is eager to relent and not punish. And who knows? Perhaps he will give you a reprieve. Sending, and I can testify to this, sending you a blessing instead of a curse. In other words, if you are willing to come now back to God, you know you've been on the wrong path. You've done a lot of things that could really get you in a lot of trouble. But God is saying, look, Mark, if you come right now, not only will I relent, not only will I be glad to have you come back, and maybe instead of giving you a negative future, I'll turn around and give you something you don't even deserve. I'll give you a blessing. Man, that's how awesome our God is. If you're on the wrong path today, just come back because God is not looking to punish you. God wants to bless you. I really want to get this message today because one of my issues is I can really be stubborn. I really want to receive this. I don't know why I've been sitting on this message for months, but for some reason I felt like the Holy Spirit was saying, this was the weekend. And I don't know who I'm talking to today, but I could be talking to somebody like Balaam, you're just like right over the edge. Please come back. Please take a step back. Father, thank you for letting us be here today. And I pray that you will help us and start with me, Lord. I need this message more than anybody else. Help us, Lord, to get off our path and to get on yours. In Jesus' name. Now pray with me just a little longer. Earlier I read you a verse that says that he has taken our crookedness and put it on Jesus I could be talking to somebody here today and you're saying, Mark, I need a relationship with God. I don't think I've ever had one. Maybe you've been religious. Maybe you've been irreligious. Doesn't matter. God's not calling you to religion. He's calling you to a relationship. And the Bible says anyone who will put confidence in Jesus, God will forgive and give everlasting life. Now, you can pray your own prayer. God's just looking for a prayer that says that you believe. But, you know, I've done probably a thousand weddings. And uh, time after time, I've asked the bride and the groom to repeat words. And when they finished repeating words, they were married. I'm going to pray a prayer, and these aren't magic words, but if you mean them in your heart, there's a God on the other end who will bring you into his family and forgive you of your sins and give you the promise of everlasting life. And you can never be lost again. If you want to, pray with me, please. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I've traveled my own path. I want off my path. I want on yours. I believe Jesus died for me. I believe he arose from the grave. I ask you to forgive me and make me God's child. In Jesus' name.